0: This afternoon I'd like to um, reflect upon September 11th. Because I think that what we have gone through, and my assumption is that even though it happened within the continental United States, that the reverberations gone through Canada as well that these opportunities are very rare uh, for us to um, really come to some very deep principles of how to live in the face of these calamities and sometimes they don't occur um, until there is a a tragedy in one's life, for instance, of uh, death or dying, or having somebody die, losing someone, something like that. Just uh, <clears throat> five days after the uh, the 11th, so I think it was the 15th or 16th, uh, my wife and I got on an airplane and flew from Seattle to Newark, New Jersey, which is right across the river from New York City. And as the plane landed, we could still see the smoke coming up from the the central part of the city. And the uh, direct experience of those events uh, were very, were much more dramatic than having seen it on TV. Then we got in a car and drove about 100 miles north of the city where 400 people gathered to do a retreat together. And we maintained, we were like the seat of sanity within, we were the island of sanity within a sea of insanity. That's what it felt like. I think each one of us came out of that retreat feeling uh, that there was a certain responsibility we had to communicate that sanity in every way we could. So let's just reflect for a moment on something that tragic. And perhaps we have our own tragedy or set of circumstances in our life that have caused um, uh, an equal unsettling quality. For instance, I was uh, speaking to uh, a yogi at IMS who was outside of Boston, living outside of Boston, and she told me her personal story of her eight year old son who was on the playground hanging from the parallel bars when one of the sort of bullies of his class grabbed his legs and pulled him off the Parallel bar, so that he fell back and he cracked his head. He got up uh, rather dizzily, dizzyly, dizzy, whatever the word is, dizzily, <laughs> uh, and went to his mother, complaining of a headache. His mother took him to the infirmary, where he died uh, in her presence that same day. And she was relating this story to me. And she said, uh, very soon after his death, about a week's time, uh, when she had worked through the complicated emotions of having lost her son, or was just beginning to work through those complicated emotions, she realized that there was another tragedy that was befalling another child, and that was the perpetrator of of the tragedy itself, this young bullyish boy, also eight, who was in the same class because she had heard word of mouth that people were blaming and accusing and um, just forming a whole identity around this child in which he was a murderer. So she went to the school and she stood in front of the class. She said she did not want any retribution made against this child whatsoever. That there was already enough bloodshed. And that this boy was not to blame. And that if she was able to say that, then they could also act from that point. I want to just stop there and pause because I want us to take that in in relationship to September 11th. When I watched on TV the crumbling of those towers in front of my eyes, knowing that the screams of thousands of people were welling up in the ashes of those towers, I ran through every range of emotional reactivity that you can imagine from grief to anger to fear and insecurity and with a whole range of actions coming from that emotional volatility retribution and retaliation and vengeance and then trying to understand, but not having the basis for any understanding, the whole array. I could see the mind's response because contained within each one of us is the consciousness of human beings, not our consciousness, but all of consciousness. And so we're going to go through the continuum of human experience when such an event arises. And I saw from that event a certain school of very conservative minds that wanted immediate retaliation and vengeance. And I saw another school on the opposite side of the continuum that took the high road of saying no, we should not do that, we should remain non-reactive, that we should uh, be and non in the ways of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, etc. I saw that whole range. And I saw that both of them were in some ways a reaction against each other. And that neither one was the complete story of the event, the very mixed and complicated event that had occurred and was continuing to occur, f- f- uh, being festered in each one of our hearts. And the Sangha came to me and said, we should make it. I said, not yet, there's not enough clarity to make a a clear decision, a clear direction to have a clear response. We're still too much in the war and tug of our minds. That vulnerability, that we felt and continue to feel has a quality of healing to it. If we can access it without closing down. I called up a friend of mine who lives in New York City and she told me that New York now is a softer town than it was before. There's a feeling of community where there hadn't been one before. I don't know how long it's going to last that doesn't. That isn't my concern. My concern is that when there's a vulnerability like that, and a a decimation of our self-reliance, i.e., control and influence, then there is an opening in which the truth can, uh, uh, the heart can uh, enter. But when that vulnerability turns into fear, then the heart closes down, the mind reacts in terms of indians. I could see that, you can see that. Right in front of our eyes. And the news of last night as I was watching the news, Israel, Jerusalem, Palestine, Israel, Palestine, Israel, Palestine, fist blow, blow, blow. It's a prize fight. And you look at the conditions of human history, and we don't, let's not go back any further than 50 years. Shall we just go back 50 years? Let's go back not through World War II, but from World War II and see that 120 million people have lost their lives in war since World War II. and we hold that we hold that and I say to myself what kind of mind what kind of mind would do such an act because I want to understand that kind of mind I want to see it in myself let us be very clear that the mind of the terrorist is contained within each one of us and although the degree of ignorance may not be to the point where we would perpetrate such a Disaster, or even that we would perhaps intentionally harm physically someone else. The degree of ignorance is the same of the the terrorist mind is the same as the reactive mind that is very self righteous in its anger, and holds the perspective at the expense of the connection to another person, when the idea is more paramount than the humanity on the other end of the idea. So a mind of a terrorist is living so conceptual, with such conceptual overlay, that he or she can't even feel the sense of humanity on the other side of the idea of where that idea will take them. And I can see that sometimes in my mind it's exactly the same way. When I'm cut off in getting off my exit, the rage loses the sense of connection and that what I want or what I fear becomes paramount and the sense of connecting with another human being isn't even there and many of us have lost that sense of interconnectedness because we just live with what we want and what we fear on an ongoing daily basis no more connecting as community Because, to be honest, we don't care about them. We care about sufficiency for ourselves. And that takes all of my energy. And I don't have time to listen to your problems. I've got my own. And so you, to me, are just a set of concepts. And there's no sense of humanity on the other end of that. Aren't I describing... And yet a tragedy such as that forces us out of our habitat of loneliness, of aloneness, into the realm of the heart when every person is precious. Through our own vulnerability, we see that preciousness. When I'm invincible, I don't care about you. The walls are too thick me to have any kind of heart space at all. But when those walls are blown down, I go back to the school and tell the eight-year-old children that I have forgiven the person who killed my son. And then we have the moral righteous community, in our states we have the reaction of the fundamental Christians who said, some of whom said, that the lesbians, the gays, the feminists, and the abortionists were equally to blame for New York City and they say, oh, that's the mind of the terrorist. Well, I see that. That's the mind of the terrorist operating within our own boundaries. If those people had their way, truly, they would do that to gays, abortionists, and feminists. That's what they would do. That's what they're saying. Okay, so that's the mind of the terrorist. I see that. Now, I'm not, at this point, creating any action. I'm just taking it in. I'm just learning about the mind of the terrorist. To respond too quickly, to react too quickly, there's too much volatility in it, and I find myself acting from that volatility rather than from sanity. So I watch the display of reactivity in front of me, and I see that Jerry Falwell and Pat Robinson are one display of the terrorist mind, and they don't even see that and I see within myself another display of the terrorist mind that often I'm inc- unconscious with also, and I see that. And so I'm less willing to condemn those who would perpetrate such a catastrophe, catastrophic event in New York City because I see little events are being created and perpetrated in my own life with my wife in my driving in whatever way. And I just take all that in, and I see that. Two weeks ago I flew to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. <laughs> and we held a retreat at Moose Jaw. And Moose Jaw's sangha is mostly fifty plus women, fifty age fifty plus. And mostly women. There were like three or four men out of 30, 35 people. And two of the women come to me and they say, when they had integrated what had happened in September 11th, they got together and decided to hold up a sign on the busiest corner of Moose Jaw. I'm not sure how many cars pass. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's not the point point. <laughs> and the sign says anger never ceases through anger only through love and they stand there holding this banner and they meditate with their eyes closed and Whatever reactivity the drivers have that pass, honking their horns, pinning their finger, it doesn't matter. They just hold the sign. They hold it all. They hold the responses that are coming at them. They just hold it. And I said, I want to go back and do that in Seattle. Suddenly, after as much integration and learning as I could, suddenly it it fell into place. The change, dropped. Anger never ceases through anger. That's the eternal law, only through love, said the Buddha. So I say to myself, okay, This is the way, this is the way out. Not taking the high road or the low road or the vengeful road or the pacifist road, nothing like that, those are just roads. And all roads lead to hell. But now we're talking about a different dimension. So I say to myself, What does that mean? Anger never ceases through anger. Now I don't want that to be an external assumption without me seeing it internally. So I bring that sentence home to roost. And I see myself on display internally and sometimes their anger arises. And my reactivity to being angry is often one of self-abuse. What's the matter with you? You've been practicing for 30 years. You still haven't gotten to what? And I see that anger never ceases through (laughs) self-abuse. So what does it cease through? Well, the next frame is that anger only ceases through love. Now what does that mean? I'm not going to get into some kind of meta thing with myself in the middle of anger. I'm too annoyed. (laughs) But what about the ability to hold my anger? Anger arises, I'm in the middle of it, I'm in the middle of that storm, and is it okay? Is there a yes or a no in relationship to it? If there's a no, then there is more anger. And by the very intimation of that saying, it will never end. And I see that. because. There's a part of my mind is fighting against another part, the part that's angry. There's a part that doesn't want to be angry. And there's tension in the division. There's no wholeness. And so anytime there's a division in which one part of the mind is trying to calm the recalcitrant part of the mind, that division itself is just more anger. So whatever I do with my anger, is really further divisiveness. So okay then. I see that. Once I see it, I'm finished. I don't go back. There's no cutting back. We don't have time to go back. No time to turn around and say, well, maybe I ought to deliberate. No, we've seen it. That's it. Only through love. So what does that mean? And I realize that the greatest love is the love of understanding. That love, in its intimation, in its direction, in its purity, is being able to hold something like the air holds each one of us. I was saying to somebody today, I said, you know, the universe doesn't isn't really concerned about your happiness or your unhappiness. And that's love. It will let you be unhappy or it will let you be happy. And you can just have your little tantrum and it doesn't do anything to you. And you're being held the whole time. So I'm beginning to understand that the space around something is ultimately... The salvation and not my saying, Well rose if I could just turn this vase this maybe if I put it back, maybe if I stay I don't turn take this flower. How about just this? This is not a conceptual understanding. We're living the experience of love. And there's urgency of the heart because it sees what happens tragically when there is the blocking or thwarting of love in which anger never ceases. And I see that. I look out through the multiple countries and I see generations of conflict in Bosnia. And And so I say, okay. This will not be perpetuated by me. The human condition will not be perpetuated by me. We have to say no to that. Say no to it so exclusively, let me read an absolute no to that. This is written by Daniel Berrigan, who was a Catholic priest who became a, a pacifist during the Vietnam War, and he wrote, I would like to say as simply as I know how to other Christians that I am convinced that in our lifetime we have no contribution to make to one another or to the world at large except a modest and consistent no to murder. Our churches can go tomorrow, our schools could have been closed yesterday, our institutions ground under by the next wave of tanks or the next phalanx of violence. And what will remain of Christianity except that we have said audibly? And consistently and patiently over our lifetime, we are not allowed to kill. We are not allowed to be complicit in killing. We are not allowed to commit the crime of silence before these things. So now there's enormous presence and I'm very alive because I want to be extraordinarily sensitive to any intimation of violence or reactivity that perpetuates itself since time immemorial. And so this different dimension, this other dimension that arises in the complete and utter no to violence is the dimension of love. Not the sloppy, sentimental, romantic love that most of us attribute that emotion to. Not romanticism, not, oh, how wonderful, not all that. but the absolute quiet and silence of non-judgment. Of each thing being itself, without any implications or alterations of that fact. And when everything is itself, then there is clarity around those things. If I'm worried about what you'll do to me, I have no space in relationship to you and me. But when I can leave you alone and leave myself alone, because self-love is also at the basis of this whole thing, there's enormous space. With that space comes clarity and action from it. Buddhism is not and has never been about a blueprint for what to do in case of this or that. If this happens, it's not a flow chart. This happens let's see, dog bites, okay, beat dog. It's not, it will never be, it cannot. What it does is a formula for establishing that clarity. From the clarity the clarity has its own action and this is called wise action as opposed to deliberate action or calculated action it's also called spontaneity creativity originality because the action manifests from the clarity and so there's a resonance. Okay, wow, Okay, let's get a sign stand. Okay, so this. And we hold the beauty of that is that you don't hold a statement like the world's going to end in your little placard, like a, some kind of. You hold it. Embody it. So you hold the sign. People honk, and in the states yell things, peace, Nick! (laughs) And you hold it. And you understand the pain from which that is arising. And you allow the conflict to show itself because the conflict is in some ways the movement towards resolution. Let me... um, read what Martin Luther King says about that. There's some quite great quotes here. If I brought this. Get this is Martin Luther King speaking. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to hold it. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws but we will soon wear you down with our capacity to hold the pain you inflict upon us and in winning our freedom we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process as well. In hospice care we had a sign that floated throughout Seattle and the sign said, It's about living until you die. Hospice of Seattle and a telephone number. Benign sign. But depending upon where we placed it in Seattle, we would get calls. And the calls would go like, how can you possibly make me look at the D word so early in the morning on my way to work? (laughs) We want you to remove that sign. And the staff would come to me, and they would say, should we remove the sign? And I would say no, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's not to avoid conflict. In fact, people can see their entrenched views through the D word. So when we hold up that sign, it's not that we're avoiding conflict. We let it come at us, just in the same way Martin Luther King did. And through your agony, your agonizing, your reactivity, you have the potential through that to see clearly enough so that you can resolve your own conflict. Death, I'm not going to... Well, if we have any <laughs> sanity, we say, well, what's, what's, this? what's, what? what's the what? What's the charge here? What's going on? That's a big if. But the if has to be there. If we all pretend like, okay, let's cover the D word up. You keep deaf, we'll take down the sign, put it into an area of the city in which there's no reactivity, and we'll be safe. That's nice, but it does nothing to allow people to rub. To feel the rub. So, we proclaim the rub. We don't proclaim the rub in violence, in retribution. We proclaim it as fact. This is just a fact. Violence never ceases through violence. I'm not challenging anything. I'm just stating a a fact. It may be said that a person's reactivity, degree of reactivity, is directly proportional to the truth of that fact. I remember years ago, years and years ago, when I was a college student, my. Um, sister uh, was just getting into the the women's movement was just beginning and she came and she confronted some of the ways in which I didn't respect her as an equal and I was violently reactive not physically violent but through a tantrum (laughs) because obviously it was a important to me to have her less important than myself okay so we okay so okay after all the smoke clears we've got to turn back to that when we're reactive angrily when we have a perspective that is my perspective against your perspective and we clash in this verbal exchange where two perspectives aren't meeting, two perspectives can never meet. (laughs) They're just going to go like that, right? All right, so now, neutral corners, take off the gloves, go out and walk in the woods. Uh, Well, maybe she has something to say. Come back together, Now listen to this. When I come back together after being angry, and I say, "Okay, tell me your point of view. I'm very patient with myself. I don't say I've got to hear it in the midst of my anger because I know I'll never listen. I can't listen through my anger because my anger is perpetrated by my point of view. So that doesn't work. I have to let go of my point of view to actually hear the other perspective, not hold on. And as soon as I let go of my point of view, guess what? There's no anger and there's love. So you can't listen and be angry at the same time. So if we're willing to listen and receive the information, there's genuine understanding that's occurring. That is the end to violence. Now we may say, well, I'll just be persuaded by you and then I'll assume your point of view and then I'll become an Arab or something or become a terrorist or join Bin Laden's associate." so I can't do that. I've got to protect myself from your point of view. Hogwash. Our heart is clearer than that. When we allow ourselves to release our point of view, we don't become confused. We become clear. We take in what seems true from the other perspective. We connect with what is being said, but we don't necessarily agree with it. We don't say, yes, the Arabs were right. They deserve to bomb New York City. That's not the opinion that I've come to. But I want to understand why it is that you're doing this. Maybe there's some meeting ground here. And in order to do that, I can't be a patriotic American, because my patriotism keeps me from hearing. You hear the, the the Buddhist teachings like a breeze, because it movement of the breeze comes from beyond the mind's trappings. Opinions, conclusions ah. Let me read a dialogue that shows how ensconced we can be. And this, I love reading this in Canada because it's about the Canadians in the U.S. This is an actual transcript of a radio conversation between U.S. naval ships with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. U.S., please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. U.S., this is the captain of the U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Now you've got us rankled. This is the aircraft carrier of the USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. (laughs) I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse, your call. indication of the absurdity of opinions and they may not have that same degree of levity but they're all equally absurd and we just keep running into the lighthouse the buddhist teaching is to change your friggin course without the expletive. (laughs) So I'd like to end today by reading you a message from the Hopi elders, 2001, written right after September 11th. There is a river flowing now very fast. It is so great and swift that there are those who will be afraid. They will try to hold on to the shore. They will feel they are being torn apart and will suffer greatly. Know that the river has its destination. The elders say we must let go of the shore, push off into the middle of the river, keep our eyes open and our heads above the water. And I say, see who is there with you and celebrate. At this time in history, we are to take nothing personally, least of all ourselves. For the moment we do, our spiritual growth and journey comes to a halt. The way of the lone wolf is over. Gather yourselves. Banish the word struggle from your attitude and vocabulary. All that we do now must be done in a sacred manner and in celebration. We are the ones we have been waiting for. Can we sit for a minute or two? Let the heart thaw. Just let it thaw. Let it thaw into clarity, into the no of murder, into non defensiveness. being. These aren't ideals. These aren't after 30 years of practice. These accompany the immediacy of release.